painting to photography, from beadwork to woodworking. KQAL-FM on the campus of Winona State University presents Artbeat. Artbeat highlights the work and accomplishments of local artists from in and around Winona. Support for Artbeat is made possible by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Summer in Winona is a great time for all kinds of events and festivals, and one of our favorites is the Great River Shakespeare Festival. Today on Artbeat, we learn about sound tech from Scott O'Brien. Scott is the composer and sound designer for Macbeth, and also the sound designer for No Child this year. Scott fills us in on what a sound designer does and what it takes to compose music for the stage. This is also Scott's first year with the Great River Shakespeare Festival, so he's got a fresh perspective on Winona and the festival to share with us. I'm Bill Stoneberg with composer and sound designer Scott O'Brien on Artbeat. How are you doing today, Scott? Very well, thank you very much. Well, thanks for being on the show. We really appreciate it. You know, the Great River Shakespeare Festival is kind of a big deal around here. Um, big deal in the Midwest, I believe, you know. That's what I've been told. This is my first season here. Oh, cool. So I'm, I'm new to the area. I'm frankly new to crossing the Mississippi, as a matter of fact. I, I'm based in New York right now. Okay. And uh, I had a friend who was out here three years ago. Uh, one of the artisans here, uh, Melissa Maxwell, who was an actor in several of the productions, okay. came back after her first season and said, you have got to come and work for these people. And I went, great, but they have to hire me. And it took a couple more years. And uh, I spoke with uh, Doug Scholes Carlson, the artistic director. And uh, I am here doing Macbeth and No Child for the first time this, uh, this season. Great. Well, what do you think of our fair city? I am terribly impressed. I am having, I am having the best time. Um, the, the quality of the work here is, is extraordinary. And I've done a number of festivals around the country over the years and do a lot of regional work. And first-rate artisans amongst the actors and the directors, the designers, all of the craftspeople, um, a really smart intern staff that, that is, is drawn in from around the country. And it's a, just a really nice environment. Um, it's nice being in a place where the, the town is excited about the arts and supports the arts as completely as it does. Um, and from what I gather over 16 seasons, Everybody knows when the circus is back in town, right. and, and that's great. I mean, the local shops and things, everybody sort of knows you, mostly because we're all wearing badges and T-shirts. <laughs> but, you know, you go to the local hamburger joint, and, and it's kind of a big deal. And people have been extraordinarily nice, and I would come back here in a hot minute. Nice. That was going to be my next question. Would you come back? Cool. That's really good to hear. Um, and, yeah, it, everyone gets excited, I think, about the festival. You know, it's, it is a pretty big deal in town. Um, so when, like, when you're going through rehearsals and stuff like that, you know, and you got your lighting designer, your sound designer, uh, do you guys kind of play off of each other then as, as the rehearsals go on and as the show runs on? Or? Um, it depends on... There's a lot of moving parts. Um, depends upon directors. It depends upon who the other lighting designer is. If, I'm, if it's a colleague with whom I'm familiar you have a very different conversation than with strangers. Um, this is my first time here, and so other than Melissa Maxwell, who I know, um, everyone here is new to me. Okay. And, and on top of that, at least in my case, um, I'm, I'm based in New York, so a good two-thirds of the score for Macbeth were written before I ever drove out here. So I, I had written everything with the intention of simply installing it when I got here, having met with the director. Uh, once we got here, saw some things in rehearsals and started to amplify what we were doing in terms of the score so that what I thought was about 70 or 80% done turns out to be more like 40% done. And so I've written about 60% of the score on site here based upon what I've seen in rehearsals. That material then is played 
with actors during rehearsal so they get used to it. Lighting designers will come in after the fact. And again, we're all, we're all sitting in a non-theater space. We're in a classroom somewhere. Um, so it neither looks nor feels nor sounds like any of us expect it to. Uh, lighting comes in on a somewhat different schedule than I do. And they look at and hear what is going on and start to conceptualize what their uh, view of the design is going to be. Once we're all in this space, um, time is spent before we get into the actual technical process, hanging uh, lights, focusing lights, getting all of that circuited. Um, the sound system, uh, in this case, has to be installed and modified to do what I need it to do to cover the um, all of the spaces we're playing in. So in, in the, the main stage theater, we've got uh, 16 channels of loudspeakers in the space. So I've got things upstage, downstage, backstage, back of the house. So wherever we want a sound to arrive at, we can place it there quickly and efficiently. Having placed all of that then, then you can start to see how the lights and the sound go together. But until you're actually in the space with the actual design elements, it is literally a couple of guys talking. It, it is literally us sitting in some dark room. You can sit in a bar and have this conversation. Um, but it's the, the physical reality of, of putting it together has to happen in there. Now for lighting, their work has to happen in the space because you can't light it theoretically and then drag it in. Whereas, I can compose the score, know what it's going to sound like in, say, a stereo environment, the way you would over headphones or on an iPhone, and then place that in the theater and break it into these component parts. So we have things happening at Macbeth that are 10 and 12 channels deep. So um, I'm trying to make this clear. So rather than having uh, simple stereo files like you would you know, any MP3, um, the bass parts are separate from the string parts and the violins are separate from the violas so that I can mix the things so when we sit in tech and the director says, you don't think the drums are a little loud? I can make the drums quieter instantly and not affect the balance of the rest of what we're doing. But I can do that virtually anywhere. Lighting has to physically be in the space because they are pointing light in specific directions. I can do this in my head and then put it in the theater after the fact. So there it a, theirs is a harder design element to render, and I hate having to say that, but it, it is tougher being a lighting designer because you have to live in the space. Right. I don't. Right. I can compose any place I can get equipment together. Yeah, you can do kind of more prep work, Absolutely. so to speak. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, yeah very clear. Okay. Wow, that's really interesting, and uh, you hit on several points I want to get back to, but um, uh, one of them being, you know, you'd mentioned that this is your first time here. Uh, you're working with people that you just met. Um, does that make it more difficult, or is that more? I mean, is or is there something rewarding about that? Or you know, <laughs> I don't want you to call people out and say it's no. difficult, but you know what I mean. Is that is that a challenge? Having having opened Macbeth very successfully. Oh, it's great. I would love to do it all the time. Um, the, the reality is, though, uh, the whole thing, uh, having to sort of travel across country, dragging a bunch of equipment to a place I have never been with people I do not know, with a director with whom I had a single 20-minute conversation before I did this, is a little nauseating. Um, when you do Shakespeare, because scripts are routinely cut, things are shortened, things are excised, um, everybody's version of a, of a production like Macbeth is unique. Um, I've done Macbeth. This is my third production now. And it's not as though I wrote a score 10 years ago and I keep recycling it. Every Macbeth that I've done is unique because all of the casts are unique. And so, you know, you are informed by each, you know, successive cast that you see. I was at a disadvantage in that not knowing anyone, I had to write this thing out of my head and hope 
that I was in the neighborhood and hope that what I had done worked for what the director was attempting to get to. Um, and in that way, I, I got either really lucky or I am really, really good at this. <laughs> and, I, and it's more like luck because I'm a realist. Um, the work was very well received. Um, Paul Barnes, who's the director, uh, was the original founder of the festival. So absolutely no pressure for the new guy at all, uh, you know. And, and Paul has an you know, enormous reputation, well-deserved. And so I had no idea what to expect or what he might be looking for. Wrote what I was going to write because I can't do anything else. And, and, and it's hard for me to read your mind, so it's easier for me to just do what I'm going to do. Came out, put it in front of him in the theater. We sort of played things in context and went, this is what we're thinking, and played it really loud. And he liked everything. So we, it was just a question then of where do we place these elements in space? And then once we started playing and seeing things in rehearsal, seeing things in tech particularly, you would find places where we both thought this needs underscoring or this needs an accent or something needs to happen here that was not originally designed for that. So it's been really gratifying having been incredibly nerve-wracking. Uh, I drove out from New York, so I had, wow. I had three days of sort of sweating while I drove, going, right. you know, if he hates it, I'm going to have to drive home. Uh, you know, I'm going to have to go home. I'm going to have to turn around and just drive home because I, I, I'd be too humiliated to stay here. Um, but it's gone incredibly well. Uh, so it's, there's always a risk when you're, when you're attempting to make art anywhere with anyone. Mm -hmm. There's always the risk that you crash it. Um, and I've done this a long time, and it's... You know, it, it's not as hard as digging a ditch, to be perfectly honest with you. We make this sound like it's a huge struggle. Right. Yeah, it's not. Um, I, I, get, I get paid. You pay me coin of the realm to make noise. I mean, the, 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 the reality of what I do is, is I make noise and you hand me money. Right. So it's, it's not as hard as driving a truck or doing any number of other things that people are doing for money every day. But it's a 24-hour-a-day thing. This thing right. chases me all the time. So when I'm not sitting in front of the piano... I'm thinking about being in front of the piano, or I'm sitting in the theater going, oh, God, that was close, but it's not right. How do we make it better? Right. So it's stressy, but not, you know, it's not, again, it's, it's not brain surgery. We're not curing cancer here. We, we are, they, go, they call it play for a reason. Um, but it's been great fun to have work that I believe in well-received by the artisans with whom I'm collaborating and for them to allow me to basically put things on and around and under their performances that can in some ways profoundly affect what they're doing. Right. And, and that's, that's spooky when you, you watch people that are really, really good at this and are aware that I could screw this up. Like I could, I could, I could hurt this and that would be a tragedy because they're really good at this. On the upside, I've got a director who is very good at going, no, that's not quite it. And, and so he keeps me on the keel. It keeps me on an even keel. And so what we've put on stage, we are all really, really satisfied with. So were I to do this again, presumably, um, I, I would have much more uh, knowledge of both directors and my cast, which would make that transition easier. But there is something to be said for taking a flyer on something like this and having it work. Because yeah. it could have been a disaster. And then, you know, I wanted to, uh, before we get a too deep, uh, just for our listeners, can you maybe briefly describe what sound designer is? Okay, so if, uh, as opposed to composers, and generally speaking these days, you're seeing more and more people who wear both hats. Um, they used to be completely separate positions, but the advent of, of cheaper, more affordable, uh, more powerful technology, they've morphed into sort of the same 
job or, 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 or uh, parallel jobs, I guess. So as I say, at the top of the show, um, or the top of the, the project, I'm, I'm the composer, I'm working on the music. There's a point at which I literally change hats and now I'm the sound designer. So we've got all this, how do we deliver it? Um, in addition to the music, which in, in a piece like this is fairly voluminous, um, there's sound reinforcement, there's special effects, there's the placement of loudspeakers to figure out how to deliver this thing, both for actors and for audience. Um, in my case, in a play like Macbeth, there's all of the environmental stuff. They're outdoors, they're indoors, so how do we delineate those two locations clearly for you? Um, the witches appear, and the witches are really interesting in Macbeth because a lot of times, at least in prior productions that I've done, they are extraordinarily supernatural. So there's a, there's a real woo kind of feeling to the whole thing. And I'd mentioned it to Paul, and he went, no, no, they are very much of this world. I need them, I need them to not be separate from the environment. I need them to be organically attached to the environment, which is okay. I mean, like, that's a concept I had not considered before because it's never one what a director's wanted. So while we've still got this spooky, unsettling kind of world built around them, it is much different than if I tell you that they're all non-corporeal. At that point, all of the, the thing becomes incredibly ooga-booga, for want of a better word. Um, this is much more grounded and just, the, the design's focus is to be as unnerving and unsettling as possible without being obvious. Like you should be vaguely spooked when they come on and not know why, because I know why. Like, like I know what it does. So part of the design is building those elements mm -hmm. and then installing them and delivering them in a way that, one, we can reproduce, show after show, and two, that move in space in ways that, that follow the action that's going on. Um, some of it, then, is just... Um, sound design is basically... Well, all design, really, is, for me, two things. It's either tell me a story or solve me a problem. Okay. That's all it is. Everything else is showing off. So that... In terms of telling you a story, that's what the music does. I'm there to sort of underscore and, and move things along and give you an indication of what the feeling is. But the design elements, um, they're outdoors, and it's a dark and stormy night. Well, we can't make rain in the theater. We can't destroy the place. So that's my problem. So that's, that's the solve you a problem part of it. Um, a lot of the, uh, the, the big battle at the end with Burnham Wood coming to Dunsinane, uh, we don't have a 1,000 guys to handle that. We've got you know our 11 guys and me. And so I become everybody else. So I'm the horses, and I'm the guy. I'm, I'm the armored horse, and I'm the guys with bows and arrows shooting from a distance, and I'm the guys with the axes cutting off heads. That's me, and and delivering that in context with live actors on stage, so that you never think about the lack of mass of cast. What you you don't want to look at it and go, God, I wish there were 40 more guys. God, me too, but there aren't because we work in theater and this is budgeted. So. I'm, in some ways, I pick up the slack and I provide an environment in which, they, in which everything that they do and all the lines they deliver are convincing within that larger environment. And it's, it can be, for a complex sequence like that, a really neat trick to make that work because I've got to be big enough for you to believe the mass that's going on and small enough that you can understand all of Shakespeare's lines, which are incredibly important in that fifth act. So it's, um, we spend a lot of time in tech going a little more here, a little less there, a little more here. And, and the director uh, was, gr was great with this. We, we, we spent less time than I anticipated because it was a very sort of gentle, 
it needs to be a little quieter here and then we can make it larger here. But it was very um, sculptural would be the best way to describe it. So rather than saying, you know, we're going to make all of these enormous moves, it's these tiny subtle changes that allow you a gap in the, in, a gap in the, in the mayhem to understand the dialogue, and then we're back to mayhem again. And there's music playing the entire time. Through the whole battle, there's 10 minutes of music that plays without stopping, that they all have to act around and over and through while the battle happens, while heads are coming off. Um, it's, it's a pile of stuff that, that, that works very, very well. Um, we all sort of, there was a lot of sitting at the desk amongst all of us kind of like, how on earth do we do this? in real time. Like, how do we make this happen? Remembering, there's a lot of people on stage who don't know how we're doing this. They're just trying to do their lines and get through their blocking and not kill anybody. Right. How do we wrap this around them and make this work dependably, reliably every time in a way that's exciting? And we got fairly lucky on the first try and went, God, 90% of this works. Let's not change that. Let's fix these things. And once we started to reproduce it, you put it in front of an audience and look at it in previews and go, Yes, that's compelling. Everybody's really quiet at that point. This is working. But it's, it's, a, it's a very complex process that, the, that the, availing, the prevailing technology with computers allows us to reproduce over and over again. This right. would have been brain surgery to do 25 years ago. Right. I mean, it, I, and I've done it, and, it, and it, it was a nightmare. Now, between computerized lights, computerized sound, once you've established the reality of what it does, you hit a button, the thing happens. Like, all of this magical stuff happens. And so you spend more time on the front-end programming to achieve you know, a predictable, repeatable result. But the creative process is exactly the same. The problems don't change. It's always, it's always how do I tell you this story most effectively? And it used to be in the old days, you would have to do it quite literally live. You'd have to mix it live, and, and the lights would have to be shifted live. Now, you front-load all of that information still employing the same process, but then once you hit the magic button, it happens, and you can reproduce it eight shows a week with no effort. Right, right. Does that, so, you know, when you're wearing both hats, um, does that, uh, does it make it easier, or is it more challenging that way? Do they kind of inform each other, being composer and designer like you are in Macbeth, or? Uh, very much. I was, a re when I left I was a concert musician for years, and when I left that to become a theater artist, um, I started writing scores and wasn't giving a thought to sound design until I'd gone to see a show that I'd done for a friend of mine and didn't recognize the music and went, you know, what happened here? And he went, oh, the sound designer made some adjustments. And I went, really? And I have designed my own shows from that day to this. So I, I am, if, if I'm honest, I'm a sound designer out of a sense of enlightened self-interest. Um, it wasn't a thing that interested me particularly, but it was a way of defending my own work. Okay. And I got into it because you get to create entire worlds. Um, I am always the sound designer of shows I compose. I do not always compose the shows I sound design. So No Child, for example, which I'm also designing, has no score. It's, it's a, it's a one-woman show, one-actor show, portrayed by, by one woman, uh, Melissa Maxwell in this case, about a New York City teaching artist. And she plays 17 different parts over the course of a, what is essentially a blank stage. There's a blackboard and a chair and an actor. And so I'm charged with providing the environments of the high school she's in, in the classroom and the hallways and you know New York City streets and things. Uh, but there is no score. It is just about supporting the actor and creating an environment. So um, it, it, yes, the sound design aspect informs what I'm doing compositionally, but when I'm not composing, 
I'm just a sound designer. It's the same muscle, if I'm honest. Because, again, solve me a problem, tell me a story. That's all I'm doing with the sound in this. And while I, I, if I'm honest, I prefer composing to sound design because it's just inherently more creative for me, No Child does not need a score. Like, I mean, you know, is there a moment of, you know, boy, it'd be fun to put music to that. No. It's, it works with an actor on a bare stage and that sound and that's it because that's the story they're trying to tell. All I could do with music is screw it up or make it maudlin in some way and, it, and it's not intended to be. So, yeah, design, I'm always thinking about how I'm going to deliver the thing that I'm creating. That's always in my head. Just because it's, I've done it so long, it, it's just a natural part of the creative process. So as I'm writing, how does this get out there? And having come here, uh, we got lucky with a very good sound system and, and a really capable TD in the building that has worked with us closely and being able to put up what we wanted when we wanted. And they allowed us to abuse the system in the dead of night when no one was around so we could really figure out what the stresses and tolerances were. And once we figured out how big we could make things, I stopped worrying about delivery. It was a case of, oh, this is going to be okay. Like, this is going to work. We're going to be able to tell people the story we want to tell them with the, with the size and the scope and the energy you want them to have it's worked out fabulously so you're oh yeah you're always sort of working towards the problem of how do i get this out to an audience right right so you know i'm kind of curious uh you had mentioned how technology's changed and how now, you know, you mentioned pressing the button, you know, but you have to do all that work and, and designing it and putting it in first. Um, does that give you more, does that take a little stress off of, you know, of the nightly grind and, and, and does it give you more kind of creative freedom at the front end of things or? In some ways, yes. I mean, in terms of whether it takes the stress off at night, you'd have to ask my board op. Um, oh, because I don't run the shows. So, so to be clear about that, designers are almost never board operators. Um, one, because it's, it's not our thing. Two, because in my case, I am the world's worst board op. I, I can't take a cue worth a damn. So um, we have uh, an exclusively intern staff that actually run the shows. Yeah. Um, in fact, the intern that, that's running audio this summer uh, was a student of mine at Montclair State University, and I brought him out. And so he's somebody who's spent two years with me in the theater understanding my design aesthetic to begin with. So it was not, um, unlike the other designer who's here, Catherine uh, Horowitz, where he's had to sort of learn her style and what she's looking for, he knew coming in the kind of you know noise I was going to make and what we were trying to get at. Um, the running of it, it's, even though it's being run by computers, it is still an incredibly precise art. And from what I gather from my board ops, it is fairly stressful because they're aware of not so much you know, that they can screw it up, but how important it is that it be right. Because when they get it right, everything flows from that. When the cues are in the right place, actors move without thinking about the next thing. They're not worried about it. They just tell the story. Um, so, And there's a lot of cues. There's almost 900 sound cues in this show. It's, it's a dense little piece. Um, and so it's... Yeah, the technology makes it easier to reproduce things, but the idea that somehow the robot runs it is is patently untrue. At the end of the day, there's always a guy at the end with a finger. Right. Always. And that's smart people all the time. This is not one, and I've heard people say, well, you know, anybody can be a board op. I can't be. I'm a smart guy and I can't do it. Um, it is a specific skill set that 
not unlike juggling, you either can or cannot do. Um, I cannot. Um, but I am, I am always amazed at how good board ops and stage managers, particularly who really coordinate the board operators, um, are at getting exactly what I'm trying to get and what the lighting designers are trying to get out repeatably. This is an incredibly complex piece and really good stage management, like really first-rate stage management to make everything we're looking for happen every single time to the point where I don't worry about it. I don't think about it. I know it's going to be there because that's who they've hired to do this job. That's how good they are. Cool. Now, I'm kind of curious, you know, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but what I'm kind of hearing is like that the, especially the sound design and the music, uh, it should almost be felt and not heard or? Yes. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's very much about emotional impact. It, It is about sort of getting you to, I'm trying to underline certain moments or italicize certain moments right. in the dialogue and go, hey, this is important. Pay attention here. Um, sometimes it's just to heighten the, uh, the, uh, the emotion that the actors are, are putting forth. Uh, but there's, for example, uh, when Lady Macbeth first appears, there's a, a famous monologue that she has after reading a letter, and, it, and it's basically plotting to, to kill the king. And uh, the, the actor playing Lady Macbeth is stunning in this. And the first time I saw her do it, it it's terrifying all by itself. It's really unsettling. And I'm in a room with full lighting and the sun is shining and she dropped into this thing and it's unbelievably good. And, you know, I had the gall to, you know, to talk to the director and go, you know, we could underscore that. It'd be fun. And he went, really? I went, yeah, I, I swear to God, I know what to put there. And we ran a thing under it. And, and there's not a lot of conversation with the actors other than, hey, we're going to try something. Just do what you're going to do. And we played some things under it and it was unbelievably unsettling it just and it and it 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 did not change her performance i would not deign to change her performance but it amplified in some way aspects of the performance and so when you see it on stage with lighting and the set and the costumes and all of this drops down to this very minimal light and she's damn near in the dark and this wonderful voice comes out and there's this odd thing under her while she talks. It is incredibly disturbing. And it's the, one of the first times in the play that the entire place comes to a halt. I'm watching the audience and nobody's moving. Nobody's breathing because they're just listening to what she has to say. And she's very close to you in that moment. She's not way upstate. She's down front. And this appalling thing is running through her mind about this. And you can hear everybody in the hall thinking, oh, Lord, we're in real trouble here. <laughs> and, it, and, it's, and it's very gratifying to, to be able to do that and, and, and have that kind of an impact on an audience. It's not important to me that they know who did it. It's important that it got done. Right, right. The end result of, as a whole, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I'm, you know, and another thing I'm curious about, you know, you, you mentioned you had like what, 25 some years of experience or something. Yeah. Um, how many times have you composed for Macbeth? This is the third time I've designed this show. I was the, the, the resident composer and designer for a Shakespeare company in New York for uh, 15 years. And so have done any number of productions. I've done, Mac, I've done Hamlet seven times, you know, but Macbeth is only the third. Um, so so when, you, when you compose something like, like Hamlet seven times, um, what's that like the seventh time compared to the first time? You know, I mean... How does that how does that affect yeah. your composing? So, am, am I digging the same ditch? Um, no, uh, they're all unique. Um, I I was never an actor, and I am a very poor reader of scripts. That is because I was never an actor. 
to me, scripts are basically phone books. It's a case of, oh, there's a dark and stormy night here, a dog barks here, the phone rings here. That, that's what I get out of it. So for me to get the full impact of a script, whether it's Shakespeare or a new piece, makes no difference to me, um, I need to go to a reading. And so I go and I sit in the back while the actors read. And so what I did for uh, the American Globe Theater in New York for 15 years is they would have a first reading, the director would invite me in, I would sit in the back with a notebook and I would just listen to you read the script. And, you know, so your Hamlet is a very different interpretation in my musical brain than someone else's Hamlet. So it's not a case of, and it's never a case of, and, and to me just because it's no fun, you know, do I recycle uh, or repurpose aspects of prior scores? No. Um, it's more fun to do it fresh because I'm seeing the play for the first time. Everybody's Hamlet, everybody's Macbeth. Uh, Macduff in this production is, is, is the thing that caught my eye early on. Uh, because I got here uh, the day I arrived, I got out of the car and they went, oh good, you're here. They're starting the first read of Macbeth now. Go, you're late. And I ran across campus and went, where? And I get into the room and the director introduced me to everybody. Oh, please sit here. And I sat down and they start to read. And all of these wonderful voices and things. And so I'm running through my head the music that I've already composed about how are these going to work with this? Um, and, and luckily, you know, everything actually fell into place. In other earlier productions that I've done, um, I'm sitting in the dark trying to imagine what that thing sounds like or what instruments we're going to need based upon the tenor of your voice or the way that you perceive the character versus the way that I perceive the character. Um, so they're all unique. So for me, Hamlet seven times is seven different plays. It, it is, they're absolutely unique. I know how it ends. But other than that, everybody's interpretation is quite different. And that's what makes... That's why you're doing Shakespeare 500 years later. Because everybody's view of the play, everybody's interpretation of this important information is unique to them. That's why you do the play. And so, for me, that's why, you continue, that's why I continue to score them. Because they're all unique events. And, you know, it's Hamlet, so it's never bad. Oh, my God. The, right. worst, one I, the worst one I ever did was wonderful, you know? <laughs> cool, cool. And you really have to play off of each actor and, and how they perceive the character then, correct? I do. Well, y yes, I, I do. Um, I mean, it seems like it would be the best way to go, right? I mean... In a, in a perfect world, and I would have done that for this had, had I had the opportunity and the time and, and, and the budgets, frankly. But with small regional festivals... Um, the idea of you know, having the composer here for 10 weeks is, is just financially not viable. Uh, it wasn't possible for me under any circumstance. So it was a case of I know enough about the play and I know enough about these characters based on prior experience. And, and again, they were prior versions were really disparate. I mean, one of them I did was an outdoor production and the whole score was heavy metal. Uh, yeah, because uh, I mean, Macbeth arrives in the first act in a 64 GTO convertible. So, so nothing, I assure you, that is on stage here in any way connects to that production. Um, but, you know, I know the story. I know the dynamics that are, that are ongoing. I just don't know the interpretation that you're going to bring to it. So based upon my prior experience and the conversation with the director and, okay, drums and Scotland and low brass and low strings, I think I can create something for you that's going to satisfy me and then I'll worry about satisfying you. And so that's how the thing got written. It not, not as completely satisfying as, as being in the room when you're doing it for the first time, but pretty close. Right. Pretty close. And like we said, you got to start somewhere, right? You have to have a basis. Yeah, well, and you deal with the reality that you've got. I mean, again, I can't be here. It, it is not possible or financially viable. So 
be an adult about it and do your job. You know, right. um, if anything, being in the room with all these people for the length of time that I have been, which is about seven weeks now, is a luxury. Is a luxury that I rarely get. So, this is better than I would have expected. If I, if I'm absolutely candid with you about it. Okay, cool. That's great. That's that's really good to hear. Um, I'm kind of curious too. Uh, do you mainly do Shakespeare or only do Shakespeare, or do you do other playwrights? Uh, um, I, I am an itinerant composer and sound designer, so I go. I, and I had I have been in academia for a while and just ceased doing that. Um, I go where the business is. So I do new plays and I do classics. Uh, I fell into Shakespeare by, if I'm honest, dumb luck. I lied my way into an interview, and they hired me, and I was there for 15 years. Um, so I've done a lot of Shakespeare, and I enjoy it. I like that. But I do, um, with M Melissa Maxwell, who, again, an artist working here this summer as an actor, uh, who I know primarily as a director, uh, we do a lot of new work around the country and regionally. So I've done, uh, you know, jazz scores, and I've done things with sort of, you know, stuff set in the 1860s. Um, and it, so I don't have a specific style or, or, or uh, period or genre that I work with. I write the music that I'm interested in writing for the production in front of me. Because for me, that's the challenge is to learn something new every time. Because the research is always fun. You know, uh, we, did a, we did a play about free people of color in Kentucky in 1865. And the only conversation that I had with, with Melissa, who is an extraordinary director as well as actor, was... I do not want this to be a history lesson. I do not want to lecture people, okay? Because the music of the day for uh, uh, the black community would have been primarily field hollers and things, so the, the, the precursors of gospel music. And the uh, primary music for white people of the day would have been uh, brass bands, Stephen Foster marches. Like, like those were the two extremes. And she went, yeah, no, none of that. And I went, okay. So I wrote a whole score for slide guitar and, a, and regular acoustic guitar and hand claps and foot stomps and washboard bass oh, wow. and that a wash tub bass rather and that was the entire the entire band for the show was that so a completely foreign notion to what I normally deal with which is larger sort of uh, postmodern orchestral scores but it fit the environment told the story that we wanted to tell and was just hugely fun to do I mean it was a blast because again I play everything that I compose. So I, I'm, I'm the guy in the studio on both ends of the recording uh, deck. And so sitting around learning how to play that music and playing it convincingly is a greater challenge than you would think. Um, when you listen to the score for Macbeth, it should sound like 30 guys. If it sounds like 30 guys, I've done my job. If it sounds like one guy, then I failed. In my humble opinion, this sounds like 30 guys. Like, like there, there is a whole army in there raising hell every time there's music. Um, and it shouldn't sound like you know, a guy in the dark. That's not, that's not how you perceive living theater. Right. It's got to sound organic. It's got to it's be imperfect. Okay. You know, um, and I used to tell students, you know, the machine is a means by which I render the material. The machine never plays the music. It just plays it back. I think of computers as really expensive tape recorders. So I sit and play stuff until I can play it. There's not, there is very little, I won't say none, there's very little post-recording editing going on. I don't go back and fix things. I would rather play it right. Because that's why I became a musician, was to play things well. And, and, I, and I've been playing for a number too large for me to say to you on the radio. Um, but 
it's still fun. At the end of the day, the, you know, the point of doing this is not because it pays incredibly well or because the hours are greater, because I get to meet and, and, and deal with incredibly intelligent people. It's because it's fun. At the end of the day, I get to make noise and I enjoy myself. Yeah. That's what it's about. Cool. How do you, you know, and doing it for so long and uh, like you'd mentioned, um, you know, doing different plays, different directors and different, you know, venturing out into different styles of music. When you're doing Shakespeare, how do you keep it, uh, how do you keep it fresh and keep, you know, where do your ideas come from then when you're, you know, if you've, if you've done it so many times? It depends on the composer. Oh, it depends on the composer. Brilliant. It depends upon the director. Um, one of the things that you see with a lot of Shakespearean productions is they set them in different times and places. So, you know, I've done, you know, uh, Twelfth Night set during the Civil War. Um, I have, I am, I am appalled to say, done Romeo and Juliet in space. Um, and and we're, we're, we'll, we'll let that go. Uh, but as I said, I, I did this outdoor heavy metal version of Macbeth. And it's the same play. It's just all leather and machine guns. And wrote this monstrous score that, you know, I still use for demos and stuff because it was so much fun to do. Um, but very much what I'm going to do is dictated by somebody deciding this is the place and the time in which we are going to set the production. Um, and you can do that with Shakespeare because, they're, they're, because the plays are so well written. And there's a reason that you're doing them 500 years later, because they are so well written and because the human condition does not change and because the same problems you had then you have now. There are issues in Macbeth that you listen to as they sort of describe the problem. And you go, that's a very contemporary problem. No, it's not. It's a continuing problem. But, but, it, it, but it's always the same thing. Like with human beings, it is ever thus. So from my end, once somebody tells me what version they want to do, um, because rarely do you come to the sound, unfortunately, rarely do you come to the composer and go, where do you think we should do it? Um, I've, I've, I did a production of Hamlet about 10 years ago that was set in samurai Japan. And, uh, you know, for those of you listening on the radio, I am not Japanese. Um, and, and it was a bit of a, like, okay, we can do this. And so a quick research of sort of some general notions. And I'm not trying, and this is a good example, I'm not trying to copy Asian music or appropriate the culture. I am trying to take what I, what I can learn about that and force it through my filter and tell you a story. And to that end, I think it was successful as... Uh, authentic classical Asian music, I am sure it is a complete failure. But as my attempt to use these instruments to speak to an audience that is sitting out there in a field waiting for something to happen, I think it was very successful. So I, I'm, it's never about appropriation, but it's always about understanding more of whatever I can about the things that I'm trying to do, because that's the fun part. Is it, you know, I'm I'm smarter for having done it, you know. Yeah. Do you do you often have to learn new instruments then? I mean, are you continually learning? It sounds like you're continually learning. Um, it has slowed down a bit only because I've run out of money. Um, but but there are there are periods where you find yourself thinking this requires something that I'm not capable of doing. Uh, the accordion uh, leaps to mind. Um, I, years ago, uh, I was when I was first starting out. I was doing a production of uh, Streetcar, Tennessee Williams play, A Streetcar Named Desire, and I'm sitting in the meeting with the, the director and we're talking about it, and in my head comes this idea of slide guitar. And I don't know how to play slide guitar, but, uh, but all I'm hearing in my head is it, it's slide guitar. 
And so I took six months and figured out how to play slide guitar and wrote a whole score for slide guitar and, and, and pianos and drums and things, all, all of which I could already play. And for years, that score was all the slide guitar music I could play in the world. Like, every, like that was it. That was all. I, I can't sit around and play, you know, Dust My Broom or Elmore James tunes. I can play this. Um, and I've written a couple of slide scores since just because the, the instrumentation suggests itself. Um, you can sort of force an environment onto a show and go, well, this is the band I want to write for. Um, I got into a thing for a couple of years where I was using electric piano, an upright bass, a drum set, and an electric guitar, and sometimes a trumpet. Like, that seemed like the band for these modern plays. And I was having a good time writing for it. And you have to be honest with yourself and ask whether, you know, are you writing this score because this is the right instrumentation for the show, or are you just really in love with the sound of that band right now? And it was a little bit of both. Like it, like, it worked, but if I'm honest, I was having a hell of a good time writing for electric piano and trumpet. It was just cool to sort of play with that contrast. Um, but for, for a, a lot of shows, there's this very sort of subliminal notion of this is what you want to put there. Having had Paul put into my head the idea that drums were a large part, and I read a lot of rhythmic music, so the idea of, of drumming was never foreign to me, but you know, drums are the preeminent, predominant element in this. That's a different thing, because that's not a supporting thing. Now the drums are, are one of the major voices. Right. Uh, okay, how do I augment that? And I kept thinking about size, that I wanted the thing to be large. And it's where the low brass came in, the low strings, the you know, cellos and, and upright basses. Um, so there's no piano in the show. There are no guitars in the show. Um, there's a very narrow range of instruments, but they're there's a lot of them. So it's not one string bass. It'll be a dozen string basses sawing away, making the world shake. Um, and so from a vague suggestion about, I think there's a lot of drums in the show, you've gotten this entire score. Uh, the bagpipe showed up because it's a play about Scotland. And right. because if you're going to do a Scottish play, there need to be bagpipes. Now, they're affected and they're processed and they're not completely traditional in that way. Um, but because they, they, they do a certain thing in the world. Because um, we're trying to, at least the understanding that I had with the director, and I hope I got this right because now the show's open, was that we were trying to allude to it. I mean, you know, rather than writing a play which has bagpipes through it because it's in Scotland, you wanted just to always be the idea in your head that remember where we are now, that this is important because this is about uh, nationalities and nations and tribes and so I, I need them to remember this is who they are. And so we would just fly this notion of the bagpipe in once in a while, and it shows up in the war at the end, and, it, and is an important element there, and is really effective. But it's, um, it's more of a color than an instrument, if I'm honest. Like, like, I think of it more as an orchestral color. It is a thing that I'm doing to get you to go, oh, right, Scotland, I see it. And, and, and work on that sort of very subtle basis as opposed to, and now the bagpipe solo. Like, that's not at all what it's about. Make, make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. It's, it's interesting. Um, so I want to know your opinion. So I'm thinking uh, that, uh, like you had mentioned earlier, that if something goes wrong, people know. They'll notice that. Would you also say that if things go right, they don't notice? And it, you know what I mean? Do you, do you kind of see what I'm getting at? That it, they take it in as a whole, then. Yeah. No, you're 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 spot on. That's a very that's a that's a very salient observation. Um, particularly with sound design, I think there are a lot of elements in the show that you only notice if I stop them. Okay. 
there are a lot of things I build that I build just and the, the, part of the thing you got to understand about design and about composition and this is going to sound way worse than it is I don't care whether you like it or not I, I can't be worried about that I can't somebody asked about uh, you know working for the audience or, or do you design for the audience no I don't know you I don't care to know you um, that said you're all lovely people but when I'm trying to create something, particularly when I'm 1,100 miles away, I have no idea what you're expecting of me. So I do the thing that makes me happy. If I sit in the dark playing this stuff and I laugh like hell, then it's a good day. And then hopefully I can communicate that to an audience and it intersects with all the other design elements and you've got to play. But I'm never concerned about anybody else's feeling about this. I I can't be. Having said that, uh, so there are a lot of elements in here and there's small things and there's things I put there because I'm trying to round out the experience of the environment that if I try to explain to you, I, they just sound ridiculous. But if I stop them while the thing is running, you notice that there is a change. Um, something's different. You can't always identify it, but we've, we've changed the color of what you're experiencing. Um, and a lot of it is very subtle. So yeah, there's a lot of things in here that go by invisibly. There's a lot of them, I think more of the music than people think goes by almost invisibly. Not be, not because it's incredibly quiet, but because the actors work so well with it, it seems to completely fit in the environment. It's not, and now there's music on top of this dramatic moment, right. r- rather that the music so it seems to come out of the earth while they're doing this. And again, Lady Macbeth's first speech is a good example of that, um, where all of a sudden there is all of this stuff around her, and, and it's very subtly applied, and it takes a long time to do what it's gonna do, but the farther she gets into this really strange, you know, almost angry, fanatical speech, the whole thing seems to rise up. And, and, it's, and it's really fun because that's not what the music does if you don't have her speaking those lines. Right. This is all about Leia playing that part. I'm just standing there laughing like hell because this works so well. I would love to take credit for all of that. Can't because it's all about the actor. And so the the... The way that this works is that the, the sound design, the composition are as successful as the actors upon which you hang it. Right. And I've got a really good cast who play with the material, recognize it, acknowledge it, and work with it rather than ignoring it. Um, as far as things going right or wrong on that end, what I used to tell students was, I, you know, it would be nice if everything went perfectly. I am fascinated by what happens when things don't. And, and, and nothing, nothing is perfect in a live production. There's always something. And how artfully you get out of it right. is the thing that I wouldn't wish upon anybody, but it's amazing when it happens. Just because that's where you find out whether you're supposed to be in this business. That's where you find out what you're made of. It, it's when right. things are falling down all around you and everything is on fire and what do we do now? Um, and, and particularly at the university level, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of fire at the university level. and it's always fascinating for me to watch students and you can tell who's going to be successful because some of them run toward the problem and everybody else runs away. And, and the ones that go, yeah, we, 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 we got this. Those are the ones that are going to be okay. Um, but none of that, none of that should ever be visible to an audience. And hopefully when we do make mistakes, they are so pulled into our world that they haven't got time to notice it. That there's no time to go, 
that seems odd. Everything should seem, everything in the world we've provided should seem completely natural, no matter how bizarre it is. And there is a lot of bizarre in Macbeth. I mean, the audience should just be wrapped up in the story, right? And, and, yeah. and taken away by that, right? Well, yeah. And, and again, you know, there's a reason why you've been doing these plays for 500 years. Um, you can do them without sound. You can, do them without, you can do them around campfires. People have. You know, the globe did not have enormous technical, you know, right. you know equipment. And there's a reason why you do them. And, it, and it's because of what Shakespeare teaches you about you. It's not telling you about the world. It's about you and how, you know, what would you do if it was you? How would you handle this? And and there's a lot of plays. Um, I did Titus Andronicus in, in New York a few years ago, and it's an incredibly nasty piece. And teaches me a lot about me. I don't like what it says about me. I respect it, but I don't like it. But you, but it, it's it's why you tell the story, so that you learn something about you. You come out of it knowing more about you as a human being and the world. And so, uh, perfect or imperfect in the course of the story, if we are telling the story convincingly and honestly and with as much energy as we can, perfection doesn't enter into it. I'm just here to tell, I am and my colleagues are here to tell you a story. That's all we're here to do. I also, I wanna wanna know, like if someone out there is listening and they're thinking, gosh, this sounds really cool, this sounds really neat, you know, maybe I wanna get into this. What would you say where, uh, what kind of direction should they go? What should they look at? You know, well, uh, in, in terms of, of, of like, if they want to be a sound designer. Okay. Or... Well, I mean, I was a, a, a instructor at universities for 24 years, uh, so I've taught this in a number of schools, and and just in fact left one where I was the department head. And there are a lot of good university programs that teach this now. I mean, a lot. There are good ones all over the country. Um, Carnegie Mellon is a particularly good one. Uh, Yale. Well, all of Yale's technical programs are very good, but there's a lot of good ones at smaller universities um, and colleges all over the country. Um, now, when I got into this, there was none of this, so I'm self-taught. Um, I'm self-taught as a composer, as a matter of fact, which is just a, well, it would have been easier, but I'm a, the world's slowest student. Um, so, so the things that I know how to do are, are really idiosyncratic to me, but there are really good programs everywhere. Um, high schools are doing more and more work, and so the students that I was seeing uh, at the university level, sound design is a weird thing. Most people, and by most I mean 90%, do not go to school to become sound designers. Whereas uh, an enormous number who go to college to be lighting designers go because they studied in, in high school. They, were, they had access to the material in high school. University level, there are very few sound designers. I mean one in, I'll say, 20 that I would come into my classes. So the rest of them are converts. There are people that come in from other disciplines who are either disappointed in the discipline that they were studying or they find that they can do that, but they have this other skill. And it's a, and it's a weird sort of amorphous skill. Because if you're a costume designer, you have to understand about materials and sewing and, and making, a, a, again, a physical three-dimensional object that someone can wear. I sit in the dark and make up things in my head. I mean, literally, there is, no, there is nothing other than what's going on in my head. So it's harder for students to sort of get that experience in high school. And so they come into college and they'll take an intro class and you know they need three credits, they'll take the class and they find out that they've got a real facility for it. And I've, got a, I've had a number of students over the years who are doing very well who were from other disciplines and never expected to be sound designers because they didn't know what it was. Right. 
Because lighting design, you have a, you have a fairly clear notion of what its function is. Sound design functions like black magic. We're out there somewhere, and, and, and it helps if you believe in us, but nobody will tell you you've ever seen us before. Like, no one's ever actually seen us in the wild, you know? And so it's, it's a thing that you have to kind of come to almost by luck, un- unless you've had, uh, if you've got a parent in the business. Uh, I mean, my, my daughter, who was a sound designer for years, grew up with a father in the business, so of course she was a sound designer. But I don't know that that would have been something she would have gravitated toward had it not been a normal part of everyday life in our house, you know? But university programs across the country are really good. I'm, if I'm honest with you, not that thrilled with university theater programs only because I find them to be a little dogmatic. I think if you want to learn something, go to any theater and start banging on things, beg people. Um, you know, there's a lot of available software out there. Uh, the, the major piece that we use for uh, sound playback is a, a piece for the Mac called uh, QLab. And QLab is free. It, it's for stereo. I mean, it's free. You can download it from the company. Um, it is free. Uh, if you want to license it to do the kinds of things that I can do, it is very expensive. But to do basic stereo, non-time-bombed productions, it's free. It'll run on any Mac. It's a drag-and-drop program. And, I mean, you can teach 7-year-olds to do it in 20 minutes. It is, it is, it is the kind of thing where my, my best suggestion, and this is somebody who's taught for almost a quarter century, just go bang on something. Just get hold of it. Same thing with musical instruments. Lessons are good. Buy something and learn how to use it and bang on it until it tells you what you want to know. I, I, I cannot stress that enough. I think that's fantastic advice, personally. <laughs> just bang on it. You know, try it, right? I mean, just get going, yeah, right? Absolutely. It's, you know, the big thing 20 years ago was the computers were going to liberate us all to make art all day long and it was going to be a, it was going to be a miracle. And it's been damn near the apocalypse because no one produces anything that the machine won't produce for you that is not how you make art you want to make art you go sit in the dark with a bunch of strangers um if you want to see how art has been made there's a festival running here all summer where you can sit in the dark with a bunch of your neighbors and look at people working very hard all the time to tell you stories that's all we're here to do it's not to make you better humans or anything we're here to tell you stories in the dark it is the oldest thing that humans do we're doing it at a higher level with higher technologies. Sure. We are basically sitting around campfires telling you scary stories. That is all this ever is. And so, yeah, go try it. The worst, the worst you can be is bad. And what I used to tell students was, is, you know, take the risk because what if it's good? Oh my God, what if you're good at this and you've yeah. never tried so you never find out? I am here as a theatrical designer by happenstance. I'm here because somebody called me after I quit being a concert musician and said, hey, do you want to write for theater? And I lied and said yes. I hadn't been in a theater since high school. I've taught at four universities. I've been department heads. I've been at festivals all over the country. I am here now by luck, quite literally by luck. I mean, had I not answered the phone that day, we're not having this conversation. So what if it's good? What if it's good? Try it. I love it. I love it. Well, I've been here with uh, Scott O'Brien. Uh, he's a composer and sound designer for Macbeth this year, and also sound designer for No Child. And uh, we're here at the Great River Shakespeare Festival. I encourage everyone to get out and see these plays. They're uh, wonderful. And uh, it was a pleasure talking to you today, Scott. A lot of great information. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Thanks again to composer and sound designer Scott O'Brien for joining us today on Artbeat. For information on the Great River Shakespeare Festival, go to grsf.org. For more conversations on art, 
Tune into Artbeat, Tuesdays at 12.30, right here on 89.5 KQAL. I'm Bill Stoneberg, and we've been speaking with composer and sound designer Scott O'Brien on Artbeat. Artbeat is written and produced by KQAL-FM on the campus of Winona State University. Visit us on the web at kqal.org. Is art an important part of your life? Find podcasts of Artbeat and all your favorite KQAL shows by going to kqal.org and looking for program archives under the media tab. Artbeat is made possible by a grant from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.